Oh God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for who you are, our rock and our redeemer, the creator God of the universe, and amazingly, miraculously, our great high priest whose name is love. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us and direct us in these moments together. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name, we give glory. And may all our days bring glory to your name, the powerful and matchless name of Christ Jesus. Amen. It is indeed a joy and an honor to be here and to stand in this place at this time this morning. And I want to thank Dr. Dockery and Dr. Grace for this opportunity. I think that I can speak for everybody in this room, that we are grateful for the godly and the wise and the prayerful and the collaborative and the unselfish leadership you have brought to this place. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Well, you've heard the phrase, there's nothing worse than a preachy song leader. And on the other side of the coin, there's nothing worse than a singing preacher. (laughs) And this morning, I am really afraid that you're going to have to endure both. And yes, Dr. Osborne, I do have a Bible. My question is, do you have a hymnal? (laughs) During our time together, may I point your attention to the Psalms. And I pray that you will be encouraged as individuals to spend more time in the Psalms, soaking them up. And if you have anything to do with a corporate gathering I pray that you will recover the psalms, the psalter in your services. As we look back in history, the early church fathers expressed their reliance for growth and spiritual maturity in Christ through the psalms. Listen to what Athanasius wrote concerning this psalter. Listen to these words. And among all the books... The Psalter has certainly a very special grace, a choiceness of quality well worthy to be pondered. For besides the characteristics which it shares with others, it has this peculiar marvel of its own that within it are represented and portrayed in all their great variety the movements of the human soul. It's changes, it's ups, it's downs, it's failures, it's recoveries. In the Psalter, besides all these things, you learn about yourself. Because of the Psalter's unique ability to express exuberant praise to our Creator God and our Redeemer, like we have this morning, but to also to capture our hearts in their greatest angst We who are in sin and we who have been declared to be in the holiness given to us, the Psalms are the ideal structure for both private and corporate worship. So that's why at almost every chapel we gather around in, you'll hear the Psalms proclaimed. 
just like we did this morning. So with that as a background, let's look at a particular psalm. Let's look at Psalm 115. So may I invite you to stand again in honor of God's word, and let's look at these verses. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Israel. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. This opening phrase of this psalm, not to us, O Lord, not to us, has been used countless times throughout history. In his play, Henry V, Shakespeare has King Henry lead out among the soldiers after the battle of Agincourt to proclaim non nobis domine, not to us, O Lord. William Wilberforce quoted the beginning of the psalm at the passing of the bill in Parliament to abolish the slave trade. And the phrase was used in a musical composition at the very opening for the 1948 Olympics, the primary song of the 1948 Olympics held in London, Not to Us, O Lord. So what did Wilberforce and Shakespeare and countless others see in this phrase from the psalmist? I think they saw the absolute necessity of intentionally and continually giving glory to God because they knew their own propensity to steal God's glory for themselves. And the phrase, not to us, O Lord, not to us, is like a repeated cry for help that all of us need to practice. Because as Athanasius said in the Psalms, you learn about yourself. When Wilberforce proclaimed, not to us, O Lord, he was saying the victory to end the slave trade was God's victory, not his victory. But sometimes as Christians, we, sometimes I, use God as a way of pointing to me, making me visible to others, rather than God using us to point others to him, making him visible. It's tempting, isn't it? To use our spirituality, to use our spiritual talk about God, to want people to think more highly of us pastor, music minister, Bible study leader, counselor, administrator, faculty, student. We are not the point. We are the pointers. 
But as human beings, we are naturally glory seekers, aren't we? And glory-seeking self-righteousness can be really tricky. So much so, I think that the psalmist repeats it. Not to us, Lord. Not to us. And those beautiful words that are shaped in the form of a prayer and have been used so much throughout the portals of history are really unnatural to our fleshly nature. And those of us who are considered to be spiritual leaders or spiritual leaders in training, of all people, we need to pray those words most, most fervently. It is so frighteningly simple for us to lust after glory for ourselves because you and I at our core are glory seekers. In fact, we probably have a propensity to be glory stealers. even in preaching today. I've been tempted with the desire that after this message, you'd think better of me. My desire for praise is so deeply ingrained within my being that it motivates me on a subconscious level. And perhaps that might be the same with you too. Unless, unless the Lord answers this prayer unless you and I pray this prayer and realize how deeply we need the help of the Spirit to pray and desire the truth of this phrase, not to us, O Lord, not to us. But as Christian leaders and those training to be leaders, what happens when this prayer isn't prayed? What happens when we do ministry in all of the right ways? but our hearts are secretly yearning and longing for our own glory. Moses, one of the most renowned spiritual leaders of all time, shows us in Numbers 20. Now for a quick recap in the context of that chapter, it's another day of exceptionally rough ministry for good old Moses. His congregation is dying of thirst. And as usual, they are blaming Moses for bringing them to the desert of death. And with the weight of leadership crushing on his shoulders, Moses cries out to God. And God tells him, speak to the rock. Listen to these words in verses 10 and 11 of Numbers chapter 20. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff, so that abundant water gushed out in the community, and their livestock drank. Hey, crisis averted. Israel lives another day, right? The congregation of complainers once again sees the power of God worked through this incredible, hardworking, miracle-performing servant. We can almost hear the people cry, three cheers for Moses. But God is grieved. And the spectacular public victory is a devastating personal defeat. 
Because next, God says to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. The psalmist cries out, not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory. Moses yells at the rebels, must we do this for you? Moses failed to uphold God's glory. You did not uphold me as holy. Moses lost sight of God's glory, took matters into his own hands, and as a result, he missed the blessing of taking his people to God's promised land. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory. That word glory, it has to do with God's visibility. He is glorified when he is seen. The invisible made visible. And how many times do we approach the rock, the word of our precious Christ, as Paul mentions in, in 1 Corinthians, thinking that if we only hammer it hard enough, we'll squeeze out, squeeze out enough drops of, encouraging, of encouragement to the fainting souls, to revive those souls in our own congregation. And how often do we approach the work in our ministry with rods that battering at it with all of our mental might so that we can write a paper or a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or an order of worship that will quench the hearts of our thirsty flocks so that at the end of the day, people will think more of us and will be made more visible. Look, God will not abandon his people. He will always water his people with the word. And if you're preaching and teaching scripturally sound messages and lessons, he will work through you just like he did Moses when Moses hit the rock. But I'll tell you something, that kind of effort and constant drive for our own hidden glory deep within our hearts can take us down a lot of destructive trails. Here are just two possibilities. It will either wear you out and you will be sidelined like Moses or you and I will end up thinking we deserve the glory and we're somehow entitled to it. But here's the reality in God's economy of glory. When God gets the glory that only he deserves, we get the blessing. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. May it be that we, like this psalmist, always approach Christ, our rock, with fear-filled prayer. The fear-filled prayer, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name and yours alone, be all the glory. Now look how verse one ends. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. If Moses, the most humble man on earth, failed to give glory to God, how are we to succeed? The answer is, of course, we can't unless, unless God shows himself to us. 
And that's precisely and graciously what he does in this next phrase. The psalmist says, to your name give glory. Why? Because of your faithful love, because of your truth. God's faithful love and truth. The psalmist has experienced God's character and he pens this poem as a response to who God is. And that helps us to define what worship is. Worship is our response to God. Biblical worship is like a rhythm, a God-initiated rhythm. God reveals himself to his redeemed, and by faith, we respond through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our access to God doesn't come through a magical guitar lick or a, a great choir, Our access to God is through Christ, and it's a response to him. The psalmist of this chapter is worshiping, responding to God's revealed character. To your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. God's faithful love and God's truth. This phrase right there is the hook upon which all of the rest of this psalm hangs. And because of that, it's the bullseye that Satan aims for our hearts. And what is that bullseye? It's who or what you believe God to be like. Is he really good? Is he actually honest with us? Is he faithful? The serpent's tactics are as effective in our hearts today as they were in the Garden of Eden. Look at verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? If Satan can cause us to doubt God's word, it will cause us to doubt God's character. And if we doubt God's character, we will doubt his authority. And if Satan can get us to believe that God is something besides who he says he is, then we will worship the wrong God. So how does the psalmist respond to the question, where is your God? He writes, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Our God is sovereignly and perfectly situated on the throne of the universe. The taunts of the nations toward the triune God are like throwing stones at the stars. Our God is in control. Now, as we look at these next several verses, we may be tempted to breathe a little easier because the psalmist moves away from our propensity for glory seeking, not to us, and points the attention to the destructive worship of worthless idols associated with pagan nations around Israel. But like many Old Testament passages, where we might have the tendency to take a rather haughty look back in history on the poor, uninformed, disobedient, fickle nation of Israel and her surrounding pagan nations, we realize that we can be just as guilty of worshiping something other than Christ as well. Look at verse four. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. The ESV renders this verse, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And I'll leave a question hanging 
that has haunted me for weeks now. Do you worship the work of your hands? If you do, like I'm tempted to do, the idol of work keeps demanding, work harder. If you'll only work harder, you'll eventually get what you want. But our God is not made of silver and gold, the work of man's hands. The God of heaven came down, and he did not come to be served, but to serve. And God commands not work for his love and favor. Christ accomplished that work on the cross, but he He said, trust in his son for who he is and what he has done and what he lovingly encourages us to do. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The psalmist continues with the description of, of the idols. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. But our God is a speaking God. Listen to Hebrews 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and at different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I served with a pastor at LaGrange Baptist Church for several years. And at every single new member orientation, Pastor Tony would begin that meeting by reading that passage and say, we believe that our God is a speaking God. In fact, God's voice is inseparable from his character. He is the word, the God who speaks. To doubt that God will reveal himself to you through his word is to believe a lie. The idols have mouths, but they cannot speak. The God of heaven came down and he did speak. He said, I have spoken to you that, you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The idols have eyes, but they cannot see. Do you ever think of God as being in the control room of heaven with security footage of every square inch on earth, and he has the omnipotent power to monitor all of it simultaneously? But that honestly, you think he'd probably prefer to do anything else more interesting than watch the, soap, the endless soap opera of human history. Of course, we know that he does see everything, but maybe we secretly think that he's only paying attention to really important things being done by really important people. And if you, in your secret heart, if you doubt that he's seeing you, if you doubt, if you doubt that he sees your struggle with that sin or your desperation in the relationship that you're struggling with or your soul so heavy, with grief. There is no way past the waters of sorrow to hope for any breath of joy. If you don't actually think that God is watching, you aren't believing in the true triune God. The God of heaven came down and when he saw 
saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Are you distressed? Are you dejected? The God of heaven sees you and feels compassion for you. God isn't a celestial security guard seeing all and feeling nothing. He's the God who sees from heaven and is so moved with compassion at the pain he witnesses that he flings himself from a throne of unsurpassed magnificence into a filthy feeding trough so that he might cry with you. The idols have ears, but they cannot hear. Do you ever think God isn't listening or has no interest in the prayer that you've prayed for decades? David felt the same way. And yet, he knew God heard him. And in Psalm 6, he writes, The Lord has heard my plea for help, and the Lord accepts my prayer. Idols have noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. They have feet but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. The psalmist is helping us contrast the living, sovereign God of creation, the one who does whatever he pleases with the gods that are completely worthless, with the gods that can't even cough. Now look at verse eight. Those who make them idols, are just like them. And then one of the most sobering phrases in all of Scripture, those who make them idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. The psalmist is saying, we resemble what we revere. And brothers and sisters, may it be Jesus that our hearts revere so that we become more like him, transformed more into his image, like Paul tells the Corinthians. Like the caution that we see in verse one, not to us, O God, not to us, help us, God, not to be glory stealers, There's also this looming danger in verse 8. Our hearts are idol factories. And like the world around us, we often long for and ultimately create our own gods. In Psalm 115, the nations around Israel desired to have a God like them with hands and ears and eyes and mouth and a feet. But when... When the Son of God showed up with hands that healed and ears that listened and eyes that saw into the hearts of men, a mouth that spoke life and wisdom and peace and truth, and feet that carried him to proclaim the kingdom of God, they nailed his body to a cross thinking they would silence him forever. They really didn't want a God who could see into the portals of their own hearts, who knew that they were go- knew what they were going to say before a word ever came out of their mouth, and knew every move they would make and every thought they would think. And if we're honest, in our flesh, maybe sometimes we don't want that either, do we? We want to make God into the image that best suits us, unless. Unless we look to Jesus. In him is everything that's good. In him is everything that's beautiful. In him is everything that's true. In him is everything that's desirable. 
The evil one wants us to think God is hard and unseeing and unhearing and less than fully satisfying. But look to Christ and know that he is the only one who can bear the weight of your worship, the weight of your desires. Mechanical things will break down, sports teams will lose, people will disappoint. If riches is an idol, you'll never have enough. Remember, we resemble who or what we revere. And then in verses 9 through 11, the psalmist urges Israel not to be like the idol trusters, but be Yahweh believers. This is not blind faith. It's the antithesis of the foolish faith in lifeless idols. The psalmist is reminding us, reminding the Israelites, that we put our faith in worship of a living God who is sovereign over all things and the shepherd of our souls. Those who trust idols will become mute for eternity, but those who trust in God will have hearts so filled with joy that they will rupture and hallelujahs will explode from their mouths and fill the halls of heaven. The righteous don't come to the Lord carrying idols and images. We are the image bearers of God, the triune God. And he comes to us with redeeming love and provides us with infinite reasons to praise him and worship him. Listen to nine, nine verses nine through 11. And the call and the hope and trust in the Lord embedded in these words. Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The psalmist proclaims this three times to three different groups of people. The Israelites, the priests, and all who fear the Lord. As our helper and our shield, the Lord does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. His loving voice speaks. His eyes see every detail. His ears hear your voice. Because all of the blessings we long for come from him and him alone. Look at verses 12 and 13. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He'll bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. He will bless. It's not us and our own efforts, though we strive for glory with all our might. It's not the works of our hands, the idols that we hope will God will bless. It's God. He will bless us. Moses trusted in his own strength, rather than in the Lord's, and endured heartbreak because of his pride. And yet here in verses 12 through 13, we see that even though Moses forgot about God, God remembers Moses. He will bless the house of Aaron. And we know in the end, Moses' story, Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses gains entrance into the promised land he had so dearly hoped to see. But even more than that, do you remember what Moses wanted to see? In Exodus 33, Moses begged God, please let me see your glory. And God caused his faithful love and his truth to pass before Moses while gently shielding Moses in the cleft of the rock of Christ. But in Matthew 17, Moses gets to see the radiant face of God. 
And in the countenance of Christ, there is this shining glory and there's this welcome. Moses got another chance to speak to the rock. God was Moses' help and shield. He will be your help and shield. You will fail. I will fail. He will not. Oh, brothers and sisters, trust in his faithful love and truth. He will be your help and shield. And God will bless those who fear him. So let's trust him and to him, to him alone be all the glory. Not to us, oh Lord, not to us. And we sang it just a few moments ago. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, may all our days bring what? Glory to your name. As we close our time this morning, I'd like for us to put into practice the antiphonal nature of verses 9 through 11 as our declaration as a community of faith in the speaking, in the seeing, in the hearing God of the universe. I'll call out the first line and then you proclaim the answer. And the answer is this, he is our help and shield. Can we practice it? This is the musician coming out. I'm sorry, Oz. Give you three, ready? One, two, three. He is our help and shield. And when we do it, say it like you mean it. May I invite you to stand? Let's do this together. Three groups. Three groups. Men of God, trust in the Lord. He is our help and shield. Women of God, trust in the Lord. He is our help and shield. Southwestern Seminary and Texas Baptist College, all of you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is our help and shield. Oh God, our help and shield, by your spirit, help us to trust you. May our hearts long for you. You are our help and shield. And by your spirit, would you help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We know that we cannot do that in any way on our own, but only through Christ in us as we look to Christ. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's join together. Yet not I, but through Christ in me.